This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our Recovering Politician panel. And we have developments at every level of government. Provincially, we got the economic update yesterday. Good news for lowest income seniors, but nothing for the health system and nothing for our cash-strapped city. And the issue of mask mandates is heating up, given the crisis in our hospitals and the shortage of pain meds, especially for our youngest children. There are growing calls to make masking mandatory, at least in some settings. The premier says he's listening to the chief medical officer of health, and I suspect the chief medical officer, Karen Moore, is taking cues from the premier. So uh, is that buck passing? Tell us what you think. And a really interesting story on Chinese interference in the 2019 election. Allegations that a number of unidentified politicians took money from China and also that there were Chinese agents that infiltrated political offices as staffers. Uh, I think this one is only going to get bigger. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, Hugh Siegel, former Senator of Canada, and John Malloy, former Ontario Liberal MPP who served as a cabinet minister under the Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne governments. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Good morning. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, this this uh, mushrooming story about Chinese interference, and it comes as uh, a, a Hydro-Quebec employee was arrested for spying for China. Uh, what do you make of it, Hugh? Well, look, I think there's a, there's a pattern here. And the pattern is one uh, that I would refer to as willful denial. In other words, um, I know of at least one or two conservative candidates who ran for parliament the last general election who were absolutely certain that agents of the Chinese government were involved either in affecting the Chinese-Canadian vote in their riding or using Chinese-language social media to work against them. And, uh, and have said so publicly. Um, it was poo-pooed. Uh, I think CSIS, if you can imagine, said there was really no evidence of any RCM, any, any rather, any Chinese infiltration into our electoral process. And who actually breaks the story? One of the smallest national news organizations in the country, but very effective, Global. Yep. Global breaks the story. Now everybody's rushing around like chickens with their head cut off. The bottom line here is, We have a national intelligence culture that ignores the obvious, that avoids any need to act, even though, thanks to the new federal government, we have legislation that is very clear that on national security matters, our security agencies have the right to engage proactively to prevent bad things from happening. And if you look at this, and if you look at the unbelievable story, of all the OPP intelligence that nobody in the Ottawa police read with respect to the Freedom Convoy before it arrived, you just get the sense that the mindset is to look the other way. Well, I think this story tells us all there's a price to pay. And look, if the Chinese believe that we are easily penetrated and overrun by their agents, it's our job to prove that they're wrong. And that's not what the government appears to be doing. Well, uh, yeah, there, uh, John Malloy, uh, 
Is there a partisan aspect to this? I mean, I remember talking to uh, some conservative MPs about this uh, way back, uh, but uh, people are saying that uh, Justin Trudeau likes China and he's trying to block people from finding out uh, which liberal politicians might have been guilty of this or wittingly or unwittingly, I must say. Well, I mean, part of the problem you have when you you talk about these issues is we have no idea what uh, the internal intelligence looks like on this. Um, You know, you're always between a rock and a hard place because there's aspects of the story that the federal government might be on to that might be following up with, which uh, they can't disclose. And so they're in a they're in a very, very rough situation because there's obviously great media scrutiny and attention. At the same time, they may be limited in what they can talk about because it's a it's a national security issue. There is a flip side to this. I mean, let's all not be naive. Uh, uh, China's the, the largest market uh, around. We all want to maintain good ties with China. Uh, part of our economy is tied to that. Part of our economic future is tied to that. So, you know, it, it really is a, walking a tightrope that you want to follow up on these and, and take action. But at the same time, they have to think about Canada's uh, national interest. I think the third thing, just to pick up maybe a little bit on what you was saying, which I always think is, 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 is sort of amusing, is I think in some ways Canadians don't believe that we would ever be a target. You know, where that's, that's something that would happen in the United States, not in good old little old Canada that, that's sort of sitting a, at the side. So I think this is a bit of a wake-up call that, that, that we're on their, their radar screen. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't see it as a big partisan issue. I mean, we don't know what, what, what's going on internally with the federal government. And they, in fact, might be uh, frustrated with, uh, with some of the press coverage because it's not getting capturing the whole picture. Uh, Howard, do you agree? Not a partisan issue? And, and uh, how serious do you think it is? Well, I, I I think it's quite serious, but let's recognize something. I mean, China has several strategies. Some of them are soft power strategies. Some of them are hard power strategies. And some of them are subtle strategies to increase their influence around the world. I mean, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is all about China being able to exercise a lot of power in uh, the Middle East uh, and in Africa, uh, China has a strategy in terms of uh, you know making its currency you know a major currency in the world and using that to influence. Uh, China, with respect to other countries, has a, a real hard power strategy, and we see that with Taiwan, and we see it with some of the other countries in Southeast Asia that uh, China is going to throw their military weight around. Um, you know what they're doing. I think is you know, is to look back over the last hundred years and say, well, you know, how has the United States conducted itself, if, for example, in Central and South America, where you know, if the United States wanted to get rid of a government, they did. And there are many examples of that. Uh, I think they also look at you know how Britain conducted itself in terms of the British Empire. So we shouldn't be surprised at this. We also, I think, shouldn't be surprised that uh, Canada doesn't really know, the federal government really doesn't know where they want to be. I mean, if we think about the whole Yahweh uh, uh, situation, where a a Chinese national was placed under arrest at the request of the United States uh, and uh, was uh, under house arrest and detained for several months on issues, uh, that made China very angry, and they let us know how angry they were about that. So, uh, on the other hand, you know what what is Canada's uh, counterintelligence uh, and and uh, intelligence organizations like? I, I don't think they're anywhere near as sophisticated as they need to be, because the attitude of most Canadians is, you know, we're good guys, we're good, we're good people. We want to get around, we want to get along with people. Um, that's not the way the world is these days. Whether you look at Russia, whether you look at China, or whether you look at, at uh, you know some of the other situations in the world. Uh, so I, you know, I think uh, you know on the on that front, Canada's got a. This is a wake up call for us. Uh, this is very much a wake up call. Hugh, um, uh, this uh, last week, Melanie Jolie, the foreign minister, announced that we are reevaluating uh, our relationship with China. Is that enough? Well, 
um, I would say it's a beginning, and uh, a beginning, uh, a modest change in the we-don't-see-any-evil approach of the federal government is to be welcomed. Look, I remember uh, within the first year of being elected, when Stephen Harper had the, the, the temerity to say, you know, in our relationship with China, the almighty dollar isn't everything. There are things like human rights. There are things like the oppression of the Uyghurs and all of that. And you know who came down on him? All his right-wing friends in the business community in Calgary and in Toronto and in Montreal who were desperate to do business with the Chinese at any cost. And, and in fact, he had to make a trade mission himself to China before his term was up to deal with those pressures. So, you know, um, the, the bottom line is that there are always, as both my colleagues have said, constraints on how tough one can be on China. On the other hand, one has to be realistic. And I give um, Minister Jolly credit for beginning to articulate a realistic approach, which I think will be reflected in the new Southeast Asia um, strategy, which she has commissioned and which a group of distinguished Canadians are working on on our behalf. Are you a part of it? No. Okay. Um, moving along to what is happening in the province. So, uh, breathlessly, we all anticipated what the chief medical officer here had to say, Kieran Moore. He said, you should wear masks, but I'm not mandating it. And there seems to be, I'm surprised, but growing calls, people want the mandate. Is this something that is going to uh, get back and bite the government, John Malloy? I think, I mean, listen, the idea, you know, I, I jokingly called it uh, a voluntary mandatory mask mandate. And someone believed me. They said, is that really what they announced? I mean, there's so much confusion out there. Uh, <laughs> like but where that. there is no confusion is, is, you know, in the emergency rooms when people are waiting 18 hours and the lack of beds and, and what's happening particularly to uh, to children through the, the, you know, the pediatric health services. I mean, Listen, we, we, we wear seatbelts. We wear uh, helmets when we, we drive a motorcycle. I mean, yes, of course, having a mass mandate is infringing on, on people's uh, uh, rights, but, you know, government does that. And I think that we're, 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 you know, at the beginning of a very, very bad storm. And for the government to not be seen as, as decisively saying, look, you're going to have to wear mask mandates for the good of everyone else, knowing that there's always going to be that percentage that doesn't and the percentage that complain. At least it's going to it's going to uh, set the groundwork. But I think right now uh, there's a lot of confusion. I think people are reacting a little bit. I was, you know, going to some meetings and stuff this morning where people were wearing masks who usually don't. And I think that will that that momentum will last maybe for about three days, and then everyone's just going to going to uh, uh, you know go back to their old ways. So I think. You know, a mandate is clear, and uh, I think it's a mistake that they didn't take that step. Uh, Howard, is this Doug Ford passing the buck? And, and what about Kieran Moore? Well, I, I, I think uh, uh, Kieran Moore is uh, uh, dipping his toe into politics um, in the sense that uh, he probably uh, acknowledges that the government doesn't want to do this, uh, doesn't want to be seen as mandating something, but I, it I doesn't it, want to be seen as making the decision. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, but I think a decision is called for. I mean, I, you know, like most people, I scour the media every day, for, you know, for more details, news about COVID and about uh, some of the other things that are happening, whether it's the influenza uh, or other uh, uh, infections or, or events that affect uh our, our our health in terms of our lungs, etc. And everywhere I look, it sounds like it is getting much, much worse. And then when you read or listen to doctors who work in emergency wards or nurses who work in emergency wards, uh, they say we are we're already at a crisis and we're at a situation where in some jurisdictions things could uh, really start to fall apart. Uh, so you know, I I think. Uh, everybody here is trying to play uh, some, some, uh, trying to be a bit politician, a bit public health, uh, and we're in the worst of all worlds. Um, b- because if we don't 
I mean, COVID is not going away. And, and some of these other things, if the influenza doesn't go away, it mutates every year. It comes back every year. Some, sometimes it's more harmful than others. And right now, we're, we look to be facing a triple whammy. So, uh, you know, I wish, you know, I, I wish people would recognize the seriousness of the situation. I wish governments would recognize the seriousness of the situation. Do you, uh, uh, do you think that the, the government is just copping out? I agree with uh, both my colleagues on this. Um, I think what happened yesterday was a clear example that neither Kieran Moore nor the government have learned anything from the previous round of pandemics we went through. Uh, we've never had, by the way, either in Ottawa or at Queen's Park, the promised inquiry into how the previous stages of the pandemic were managed and how many lives were lost unnecessarily because government refused to act authoritatively and in time. And as long as we don't do that, people are going to begin to forget the tension that existed in the first round. And I think, frankly, that the evidence is clear that uh, Kieran should have said whatever his premier might have wanted. Masks are now mandatory in indoor spaces. Have a good day, period. Short statement. And anything less is a cop-out. And I'm embarrassed because he did a great job when he was our public health officer here in Kingston, but I think he's been infected by the, on the one hand, on the other hand, virus uh, at Queen's Park, and I think it's going to cost people's lives, and I think it's reprehensible. Yeah, you know, I, I when I watch him, I have to say, and it, it, you, thank you for reminding me that that you lived in the place where he was in charge. Uh, I'm kind of mystified because he seems to be uh, doing for the government what the government doesn't want to say it wants to do. He's kind well, of great, uh, covering great, for them. The great thing about his time here in Kingston was that he was, not only was he clear and precise, but he would invite the press in every week with a chalkboard and go through all the details and all the local numbers, subgroup by subgroup, district by district, to justify his position. Then he would take a good, solid, strong position. Now, I understand that in that whole discipline of public health, you have to worry about enforceability. I get it. And you also have to worry about being seen to be unduly coercive of all the things that were imposed upon us for good reason during the um, last round of the last rounds of the pandemic. The mask was the least offensive and the least hard for all of us to observe. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree with that. And interesting, you know, what? What, what I was thinking, uh, I guess, optimistically yesterday is that. Well, a lot of us have just fallen out of the habit of wearing a mask, and we'll we'll get back into it. But I think that John may have hit it on the head when he said people will do it for three days and then forget about it. John. Oh, I think so. I mean, I, I and you know what? I, I, I'm I'm getting older, but boy, peer pressure still exists. I mean, you go to you go to some event with, with, you know, a reception with 100 people and not a single one has a mask. And you know what? Your mask stays in your pocket. I mean, I've gone with great, you know, oh, I'm going to mask up because it's the safe thing to do. But if absolutely nobody has a mask on, you know, I mean, it, it just it just sets the trend. And I think it's, it's, it's easy to go one way, but it's just as easy to go another way. And as I said, if 30% uh, uh, don't wear masks or 20%, you know, flout the rules, that's it's a lot better to have eighty percent at least following them and and slowing down uh, all not just COVID but everything else that's going on. I'm going to take. A I, couple, I, I think uh, if we uh, look at uh, Dr. Fauci in the United States, his his own personal situation. He went to a social event. Uh, most of the people were not wearing masks. It was it was a quasi family event. So he recognized that wearing the mask, he was making people feel uncomfortable. So he took his mask off, and five days later, uh, he has COVID. Uh, when when governments are afraid to act or don't act, that's the kind of peer pressure that you find. And very few people are, you know, uh, oblivious to that kind of peer pressure. Let's... If I I could just point out what's going on in other provinces. In Don, Bonnie Henry, who uh, did uh, take some tough stands in British Columbia, has faced a number of death threats. 
Dina Henshaw. Fired, who, yes. Uh, took, yeah, was fired. The, uh, uh, she, by oh, the way, it, let me just interject. So she was the uh, very well-received uh, chief medical officer in Alberta. And, uh, well, they have a new premier, Daniel Smith, who uh, is a, uh, well, I, I, I'm not even going to characterize it, but she uh, doesn't believe in any kind of restrictions. I'm going to take a call from Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hello. Everyone's doing okay today. Um, yeah, just from the outset, I've never really trusted uh, Dr. Moore. It seemed to me that he was always just basically a stooge of uh, the government. Uh, but what I saw the other day, it seemed to me like he you know, basically wanted to stand up and scream, everyone has to wear a mask, but they won't let me say that. And that was the impression I got. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. I mean, who knows? The premier keeps saying he's going to listen to the chief medical officer of health. And then, of course, here in Toronto, they say we're going to listen to the province because we don't want different rules in different jurisdictions confusing people. I mean, there is a point to that, but it it, it really is, uh, in my view, a whole pass the buckarama going on here. Um, let's move along in the last few minutes we have to the fall economic statement. Uh, Hugh, uh, what do you think? Did did they do well with it? The, they gave a goodie to very low-income seniors, but we didn't really see anything that's going to fix big problems. Yeah, I, if I had to give the uh, budget a title, I'd call it the dip and strip budget. Uh, so, for example, uh, they're going to double the gains payment for low-income seniors, but they're only going to do it for a year. So, you know, the, the, the seniors will have a bit more money to manage in their low-income context, and then a year is gone, they'll be right back where they were to begin with. Uh, and I don't think that's social policy. I don't even think that's good seniors' policy. I think it's playing around in a way that shows you're not really committed to do something meaningful. And I would argue that there's a lot of that in this budget. And by the way, most Ontarians, I suspect, would have been waiting for something about Okay, so 20% of the GPs now in our province are planning to shut their practice. We do not have enough doctors. We do not have enough healthcare people. What is the province of Ontario who has primary responsibility for putting the systems in place to facilitate that going to do about that? The answer in yesterday's budget was zero. Nada, rien, nothing at all. And, you know, look, it's not undoable. British Columbia came out with a new framework by which they're going to provide better remuneration for, for general practitioners who can see more people. There are answers, but there wasn't even a hint, let alone of an answer, but of any concern. They continue to talk about proudly how much they're going to invest in long-term care beds. You ask any of your listeners, who wants to be in a long-term care facility? Nobody. Nobody, no exactly. One. And the amount of money that they put into important things like home care so people can live uh, comfortably in their own homes longer. And by the way, the statistics, Libby, are really clear. The longer you live in your own home, the longer you live, period, full stop. Absolutely. I mean, there's you. there's no question that we we do need more long-term care beds. But was silent. It was silent on all yeah. that. So I say to myself, look, it may have made the folks at Treasury Board and the Finance Department happy, and the Tory members of the legislature would pound their desk, and that's all good. But in terms of dealing with core structural issues facing our economy, I'd give it a four out of ten. Huh. And, uh, John, uh, uh, is, is your mark that low as well? Well, I think, you know, I, I, to pick up on, on what, what you said and I, I know he will. He will agree with me 100% on this. Is the uh, you know they 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 change some of the rules around uh, those that are on Ontario disability support, um, but it was it was it was tinkering around the edges. Um, you know this government uh, came in uh, with you know bravado saying they were going to fix the social assistance system, and then they kind of withdrew, and now they're tinkering around the edges. Um, you know, I, I think it's the one thing that both those on the extreme right, uh, those on the extreme left, and everyone in between can agree is that our social assistance system doesn't work, and yet there's no, uh, now there's different 
they'll all have different responses what you should do with it, but it's all tinkering around the edges. And the fact that they ignored health care and they kind of tinkered around the edges with this one year on, on gains, uh, the tax uh, gas tax, I believe, the suspension was for one year. And I don't think anyone ever buys the gas tax uh, um, suspension because they always feel it's just going to be eaten up by uh, by the ups and downs of uh, of gas prices. I mean, there there was there was no big idea here of how they're going to uh, uh, look at some of these uh, uh, situations, whether it's healthcare or social assistance, and they're going to try to have a, a transformative uh, uh, approach. And you know, as I say, we might disagree with the direction they're going, but at least talk about some transformation and not working around the edges. Okay, Howard Hampton, uh, I'm looking at the clock. Twenty seconds. Last. 20 seconds sure, sure. to you, please. Look, the government was successfully reelected. Uh, these issues, they're hoping, will not be thought about three years from now. So do something in the fall economic statement that maybe gets you a headline on this issue or that issue and kick all the big problems down the road. Uh, and that's what it does. And I think that's the political thinking behind this economic statement. Hey, we've got a majority government. We don't really have to worry about these issues, kick them down the road, put out something that gets us a small headline, in this case, seniors, uh, and uh, move on. Okay. On that note, I wrap things up for the week. Thank you so much, John Malloy, Hugh Siegel, and Howard Hampton. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Bye. Okay, we are going to take a break. And uh, speaking of money and investments, how do you make your investment decisions? According to the Financial Services Regulatory Office, a lot of us make it based on information. Well, that is not so reliable. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Year-end is coming up, and for many, that's a time to make critical investment decisions. And there's a very different climate this year. We've got carnage on the markets and higher interest rates. So where will you get your information from? According to a poll by the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario, 68% of respondents said they were getting investment and financial advice from the internet, word of mouth, and social media. But uh, should we really be relying on those sources? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Joel Gorlick, the Director of Policy and Market Conduct for FISRA, the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Libby. So what made you do this survey? Well, the Financial Services Regulatory Authority is focused on protecting and empowering consumers. We have a very strong consumer protection mandate. We want to encourage all consumers to take the time to make sure they're informed when they're going to be trusting someone with their hard-earned savings. So this research was a way for us to get a snapshot of how consumers approach investing, who are they listening to, what sources are they going to, like you said, and given that we are hearing that 7 in 10 people are getting their financial advice through the internet, through social media, we thought it was a great opportunity, this being Financial Literacy Month, to encourage people to ask the right questions. Uh, earlier this year, we put into place standards for anyone who uses the titles financial planner or financial advisor. The idea behind that is to give consumers confidence that when they speak to somebody who uses those titles, those people are accountable for their conduct, they have a minimum standard of education, and they're actually working in your interest. Uh, you know, when I look at this, I got to shake my head. Social media, I mean, every day, all kinds of media is full of stories about all the misinformation on social media. So, uh, I mean, what's up with that? I mean, the way that people digest and get their information has changed, obviously, and people can be influenced by a 30-second uh, TikTok video as much as they can be by advice from a neighbor or a friend. I think that's why it's all the more important that we encourage people to do their research. Uh, people spent more time, as you saw in the survey, researching their last cell phone purchase than they did the person they talked to about their uh, their financial advice. So we just want to encourage people to to do their due diligence when they are going to talk to somebody who is 
a financial advisor or a financial planner about their savings to ensure that they know that that person is qualified uh, and is working in their interest. Yeah, I mean, that frankly is very scary TikTok videos. So uh, is there a demographic aspect to this? Uh, is it, I mean, I would assume younger people, there are more younger people on TikTok. Uh, is, is there a demographic aspect to getting your financial information from these sources? Well, the research isn't broken down completely demographically that way in terms of what age of people use what sources, but I would say, uh, there are across different generations, people are, are, are getting their, their advice in different ways. I would say there are older people that are also going to be going online to get their advice and are going to want to work with somebody potentially with a robo advisor just as much as younger people would. Uh, but at the same time, I think for anybody who's going to be investing, our advice would be make sure that the person uh, that you are getting your advice from is qualified, has a credential that allows them to use the financial planner or financial advisor title. Uh, and that way you will know that they will have to have met our, our criteria, our standards for minimum education, and that they are uh, going to put your interest first. Okay, that's if you're talking to an advisor, but uh, what about people who are doing their own research? And presumably those are the people who are on social media or whatever. What about them? What should they be doing or what should they be asking? Well, we certainly would encourage people to, if they are going to be investing their money, I, I think probably we would encourage people to to speak to somebody about what they are going to be doing as opposed to taking all of their advice from a source like social media uh, or on the internet, there's a lot of good advice to be had on the internet, but there's a lot of advice that may not be uh, from qualified individuals. I think we would always say do some research to find a person that you would trust to actually give you that advice. Right. But say, uh, for instance, when, when I'm thinking about something, I, I go on the internet, I you know, know how to look for trusted sources, but uh, for people who want to do their own, you know, their own research as opposed to talking to a person, what are you telling them? We would just say that if you are going to be doing research online and you're finding somebody to talk to about it, if they are using the title financial advisor or financial planner, a consumer can have confidence that that person has to have met the standards that FISRA, uh, that the Financial Services Regulatory Authority has set for people who want to use those titles. If they are not qualified to use those titles, then they are by law not permitted to use those titles anymore as of March of this year. Okay, Joel Gorlick, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Libby. Bye-bye. All righty, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, the hunger report, uh, some very scary statistics about a big increase in the number of people using food banks, the number of times they're using food banks, and also that it's uh, more people who actually are working and have to use food banks when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We were just talking about investing and worrying about investing would be a great problem to have for a growing number of people. They are worried about putting food on the table. And the latest Who's Hungry report from the Daily Bread Food Bank shows that food bank visits are on the the rise. 1.68 million visits were recorded in Toronto. Uh, And that is a 16% increase from last year, which was also a record high. Uh, Numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740. 4740. And now I'm joined by Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto. Hi, Neil. Hi, Libby. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. Uh, were there any surprises for you in this report? There were a number. Um, the numbers are, are dramatic. This year, over the last 12 months, we will have served uh, just at 1.99 million uh, client visits. Um, so that on its own uh, is, is uh, difficult to, uh, to know. But the depth of, of poverty that is out there uh, surprised me, sadly. Um, it was much more stark than I, than I had anticipated. For example, this report talks about of people that are going to food banks, 18% of them, you know, one in five, 
uh, are um, are spending at least are, are spending a hundred percent of their income on rent. Um, they are completely dependent on friends, family, and charity for everything, whether it, for 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 their clothes, for their food, for their transportation, and and so we are seeing a very difficult situation uh, across the city. Um, and we're, we're, uh, forecasting actually even grimmer news. You know, when I, if you and I get to talk next year, sadly, our forecast is that we will be beyond a quarter million per month coming to the Daily Bread Food Bank. Uh, you talk about people being completely dependent for everything else other than rent, but you also have a, a growing number of people who say they have no one that they can turn to for help. That was that was yeah that was really thirty nine percent indicated that they did not have anyone that they could count on. That means there's a whole host of individuals who are socially isolated in our city. And if you think about you know the things that bring people to to Toronto, it's around community and neighborhoods. Yet so many people are being excluded from that. And so we have um, uh, looked at at that statistic and and asked questions about how can we increase the number of community meals that we're providing. The Daily Bread provides about 7,000 community meals every single uh, week in, the, in, in Toronto. And those are great not only to nourish people, but to make sure that we nourish the soul and that there is an opportunity for people who are able to come out and to, and to have some fellowship, which is, uh, which is absolutely critical. Well, who are the people that are so socially isolated? Well, I think by and large, we're talking about uh, many seniors in, in our city who have been shut in, perhaps by health conditions, uh, perhaps they have lost family and friends, and um, and that sense of camaraderie has uh, has been lost, and so they they are um, they're isolated. Um, we know that community meal programming helps uh, significantly with that. We also know that um, there are you know while that is a difficult situation, there are additional difficult situations in this report. Where, for example, you know, double the number of people who are working are now coming to food banks than the year prior. That means people who have full-time employment or uh, full-time hours are having to make use of a food bank because the costs of living in the city are just so dramatic. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about it, and it's people who have full-time work. I, I would have assumed that it was people who didn't have full-time work. Well, full-time hours. So that usually means people who are cobbling together two or three part-time jobs. So they get, they might have 35, 40 hours a week at least, but when, they, when they, they're putting those part-time jobs together, they generally don't have access to benefits. And, and they are, you know, quote-unquote, too rich to be able to have access to medical and dental benefits uh, for, from the government, and their employers are not providing those benefits. So they're having to make very difficult decisions between prescription medications or rent, uh, food or hydro, those types of trade-offs that nobody wants to see. Uh, yesterday in the economic statement, there was a top-up for the lowest-income seniors, also a top-up for uh, people on uh, support, uh, how much money they could actually earn. Um, it, are those things helpful? Libby, I'm really glad that you uh, you, you brought those two up. Uh, the, the first one, I think, was very helpful uh, for uh, for seniors. I think that was a positive move that the government made. On the disability front, that is the one that is, you know, of great concern to me. So what the government did yesterday was they said, okay, if you are on disability and you're able to work a little bit, we'll allow you to 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 work and earn up to a thousand dollars instead of two hundred dollars a month before we start to claw back uh, the benefits that you're receiving. And that's a good thing. Um, but here's, here's, the, here's the, the real challenge that we've got. It, the real challenge is that somebody on disability earns about $1,200 a month from, from the, uh, the province. The poverty line in Toronto is, is $2,100. And so what we are doing is we are legislating individuals who are on disability that they must be in poverty by, an, by 50%, 60%. They've got to, to, to stay in poverty. And, and, you know, when CERB came out just, just recently, you know, we all as a country said, well, we think the minimum that you need is about $2,000 to survive on. And, and yet for some reason, 
we believe that those who cannot work, those who are on disability, deserve 1200 instead of 2000 and and you can't get by in the city of Toronto on, on on that amount of money. And so I'm I'm hopeful that we'll have an honest conversation about bringing that uh, level of disability up to at least the poverty line. Oh, what uh, do you need in terms of um, money to meet the demand? I mean, how are you doing with that? It's been a real struggle on on a positive front. The 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 daily bread and North York harvest have really risen to the the occasion. We've gone from sending out 30,000 pounds of food every single day to now 110 to 120,000 pounds every day. We have gone from a food budget of $1.5 million a year to now spending $18 million on food every single year because we have, we need to meet that need. And so the city has rallied around, uh, the, uh, the daily bread food bank because the need is extraordinary, but I'm not sure if it's Sustainable. The, the, the system is under strain. Um, you know, I was I was down at uh, uh, Churches on the Hill, a food bank at um, in downtown Toronto, just recently, and, and, and speaking with their leadership about the fact that they're saying, "Listen, we might have the food, but we don't have the capacity. We don't have the the, the room, the volunteers, the time to be able to distribute the food that's coming in." Before the pandemic, we had thirty thousand. Sorry, we had sixty thousand client visits per month. That number last month was 190,000. So we are in an absolute crisis, Libby. I, I can't, I cannot uh, make it as clear as, as that. We are in an absolute crisis and we will uh, continue to feed the need, but at the same time, lobby and advocate for change so that we don't, we, nobody needs to, to turn to a food bank. Uh, we have a, a few minutes left in this segment. I want to give the numbers out again if people have thoughts on this. If you've ever had to use a food bank, I want to hear from you. What do you think about the role of food banks? And I know that a lot of people are hearing what you're saying and they're saying, hey, we, we can't afford to give people on disability more money. <laughs> the numbers 416-360-0740, toll free one 866-740-4740. I'm talking to Neil Hetherington, the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. And you talk about a huge increase in the amount of money that you spent on food. Is that uh, partially because you got uh, fewer food donations or food donations of the wrong items? Uh, well, our, our donations of food have not kept pace at all with the rising need. We've had to spend that money because the need is there. It's as simple as that. And so people in the city provided funding for Daily Bread to buy food. That's what we have done. And what we do is, you know, if somebody needs to make use of the food bank, they can come once a week and they'll get about three days worth of food uh, in all four uh, uh, nutritional categories. Um, we have had to spend $18 million a year. We'll continue to do that because we have a commitment to the city to meet that need. Uh, on a note of how people choose food charities, uh, I just very quickly looked at Charity Intelligence. They rank food banks to the top ones. So what do you think people have to look for? Uh, I mean, I have to say I was surprised you're not in the top 10 anymore. <laughs> We're not in the top 10 across the country. We're in the top 100 across the country out of 86,000 now. Um, so it, with, a, with a Charity Intelligence rating of, uh, of an A. Um, and that's because as they look at how we are making use of, uh, of, of funding, that it is uh, effective, um, that it is purchasing food, and it's uh, sending it uh, to those that, that need it. Um, the Daily Bread has a strong reputation because uh, it's well-deserved, it's well-founded, and it's very simple charity. You know, it's a group of individuals who are volunteering their time to bring food in, process it, and send it out. It's it's not complicated, and that's why I think Charity Intelligence and the, all of the raters uh, rates Daily Bread very high. Uh, okay. Um, in terms of volunteers, one of the things uh, I have to admit it's always disturbed me is around holiday time, uh, a lot of people kind of make a cameo. And mm, yeah. They go to the food bank uh, and they take their kids uh, for the afternoon, and uh, that's it. What do you make of that? Well, you know, when they bring their kids there for the afternoon, I'm quite pleased with that because we'll give them a, an, an opportunity to learn about food insecurity in the, in the city. So I'm, I'm really comfortable with that. 
here's you know sometimes there there's a there's a group of politicians who will come out in the holiday season. I'm also comfortable with that. But what we did last year was we we invited every MPP. Um, it didn't matter which political front. And all four parties came to the Daily Bread, and they they had a great morning. They were they were productive. They were sorting food and to get it out. But before they did, before we set them to work, we uh, provided them with a petition. It was a petition that we had organized where 27,000 Torontonians said, come on, guys, today is the day you need to implement your poverty reduction strategy. And so each of them got a Christmas present from us, a holiday present from us, which was a, we gave them a daily bread toque and, uh, and a petition. And, uh, and an opportunity to help them walk back from the ledge that we're on as, as a province. And? And I am continuing to advocate for change. Um, you know, I, I did like the fact that when we did that, um, I think we made an impact when it came to, uh, to disability this past, uh, this past election. For the first time, disability was, uh, benefits were part of every single political party's platform. That was the first in, in, in Ontario's political history. Uh, now, some of them talked about bringing it up to livable uh, rates, which was great, and others did not bring it up to the level that we need it to be at. But all of them were talking about it, and if all of them recognized that they needed to make a fundamental shift, I think a lot of that goes back to the poverty reduction strategy that we were advocating for a year ago. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Shelley in Thornhill. Hello, Shelley. Hello, Libby. How are you? Fine, thanks. Go ahead. You're on the air. Okay, so um, I just wondered about uh, retail stores that sell food, food products, fresh and canned and frozen, and grocery stores, and what role do they play in providing um, stale-dated goods or getting near stale-dated, especially canned goods and frozen Mm -hmm. goods? Because when I worked in that industry, it was thrown out. That's one of the changes that uh, that has come about uh, over the last, I don't know, I would say five or so years, an increase that in, in each of the major retailers uh, contacting uh, Daily Bread, North York Harvest, and Second Harvest, where we send a fleet of trucks every single day to to pick that food up, and so we will we will uh, we will do that, and uh, and that is helpful. The other thing that's been incredibly helpful in 2013, the provincial government provided a tax credit for every farmer if they're donating food direct from farms. Most food waste actually happens at farms; it doesn't happen at the uh, at, 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 a, um, at a grocery store, it happens at farms, and the food is plowed under. And so every day we have a tractor trailer going to uh, uh, southern Ontario by March, and it goes direct uh, from farms to food banks, and that is bringing in huge uh, amounts of food, and it's all donated, and it's all great food. And, uh, and so that's been a great partnership. You know, there's a move underfoot, and it's already happened in some countries in Europe, and uh, one of the other food banks is very big on this, and that's eliminating best before dates to uh, reduce food waste. Uh, what's your view on that, Neil? Will that, will that help you or hurt you or what? Well, I think, I think we've got a, one of the things in um, uh, The Economist uh, issued a report uh, about food security uh, just recently. And out of 120 countries, Canada ranked number one in food safety. And so, you know, we, we own the podium on that. And I think that's a good thing that we want to make sure from a food safety perspective that we are um, uh, making sure that nobody is injured from, from food. So are we going too far in terms of food safety? I'm going to leave that to the experts. But what I can tell you in that same study was that we ranked 26 in terms of food affordability behind Qatar and Japan and Australia. And, um, and so I look at that report and I go, okay, we're, we're real high marks on, on safety, but not affordability. And how can we make sure that we start to, 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 to change that trend? And uh, is, is uh, you know, reducing food waste, is that a part of it? I think that's, that's absolutely. Reducing food waste is, is part of it. It's not only good for those that can benefit it from it, it's, it's great from an environmental perspective. 
Yeah. So that is something that we, we would uh, absolutely like to, um, uh, to, to go down the path of. Concurrently, though, I want to make sure that we are also making sure that individuals have incomes that allow them to thrive in communities. Uh, incomes that allow them to to, to get by, um, and that means development of affordable housing, income securities that are appropriate, and and the reduction of precarious employment. Okay, yeah. So it's all it is all of a piece. And the other interesting yeah. development, you talk about sending trucks every day to get food that is uh, short dated. Call it, but there's more of that being sold in grocery stores sold in apps, um, uh, does that mean less donations for you? It does. Um, it does mean a reduction of food waste. It means that those retailers are able to get a few cents on the dollar. Um, it does mean that Daily Bread does not benefit from that. When you have you know good apps, like Too Good To Go, uh, out there in the community, um, again, we want to go to where the scale is. And the scale is not at the grocery store. The scale really is at the farms. And at farms, we are bringing in great fresh produce every single day to those that are making use of food banks. And Neil, what, what would you like to leave us with? Obviously, we're heading into the holiday season. People are starting to think about uh, where they're going to make their donations and all of that. Well, I guess I, I am hopeful that people would, if they're able, consider uh, donating food or, or funds to the Daily Bread Food Bank. Um, I think throughout this conversation, Libby, we've, we've really talked about um, systemic issues and, and advocacy. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that people will maybe send an email to their elected official um, and, uh, um, and just say, you know, please implement your poverty reduction strategy. The Canada is way too good to be in this situation. There's no reason why that we should have 2 million uh, food bank visits in the city of Toronto. And I'm going to continue to do everything that I can alongside an incredible group of volunteers and food banks all around the city to raise awareness and change the system. Okay. Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.